You're listening to a sermon preached at Grace Church of Orange, California. For more info about Grace, please go to www.graceorange.org. And now, join us as we go verse by verse through God's inspired, inerrant, infallible Word. Okay, please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Romans 3, we are moving verse by verse through Romans And we have seen some amazing stuff. We have seen some scary stuff. We've seen uh, the awfulness of sin, but we're also seeing the awesomeness of salvation. Um, Sin, like a horrible car crash, uh, we see the devastating effects of mankind's sin. But like a diamond on black velvet, we see peerless gospel beauty. We see God's saving righteousness. We see Christ's sacrificial death and the sovereign salvation of sinners. And today we're going to see in Romans 3, 27 to 31, what the cross does. What it does and how boasting and distinctions and the law are affected by Christ's death. It's basically the question, what does the cross do and how should it change us? So if you're able, please stand with me. I'm going to read Romans 3, 27 to 31. I'm going to read the perfect Word of God, the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God, and I really don't think I can remind you about that too often. It's important to know that we hold in our hands the the very Word of God, and He has uh, preserved His Word in such a way that we can have confidence that, that this is not the Word of man, it is the Word of God. So hear it. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. And Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence with us. We pray, Lord, that you would have your way in our hearts today. All for your glory. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. What does the cross do, and how should it change us? The main point today is this, that the cross humbles and unites and frees us to serve Jesus. It humbles us, unites us, and it frees us to serve God's purposes in our generation. But it is so easy, now this is the problem here, it is so easy For us who have believed in Jesus and have been saved by his grace, saved by his death, to to begin congratulating ourselves about how good we're doing in the Christian life or, or to start looking down on other people because they haven't progressed as much as us. 
or basically to disregard God command, God's commands like, hey, I'm not under law, I'm under grace, I can do whatever I want. It was really easy for us. This is our problem. We congratulate ourselves, we look down on others, we disregard God's commands, and we basically ignore what the cross does. And in this passage, we're going to see three very dynamic effects of the cross. What it does. The first thing is this, and you see it in verses 27 and 28. The first point in this passage. The cross excludes boasting. It excludes boasting. Verse 27 says, what becomes of our boasting? And the answer, it's excluded. It's eliminated. It's it's set aside. It's, It's not valid. It's not appropriate. And you see that and you think, well, simple enough, right? I mean, this this shouldn't be too tough for us, right? But actually, it's a big deal. And it's very easy for us to to boast. Boasting is self-congratulation. The word means, actually, the act of boasting or rejoicing. Like when Paul said of the Thessalonians, you are my crown of rejoicing, he's using it in a very appropriate way. But here the context demands that it be translated boasting. This is in a sinful way. And if you look at the Greek, it literally reads the boasting. What happens with the boasting? What happens with the boasting that's already going on? The boasting of Jews over Gentiles. More significantly, the boasting of a sinful person before a holy God. Hey, God, I've done really well. I'm I'm behaving really nicely. You need to accept me. Ephesians 2 uh, took that out of the way. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not as a result of works that no one should, what? Boast. Uh, The word boasting is a war word. It's a battlefield word. Soldiers would uh, pump themselves up to face the enemy by saying in their hearts and and shouting at their opponents, you know, we're bigger than you, we're better than you, we're stronger than you, we're better looking than you. We have more soldiers, we have better weapons, we're going to beat you. They're trash talking like Goliath defying the armies of God in 1 Samuel 17. Boasting. What you boast in gives you confidence. You claim to be somebody because of what you can do or what you have. What you boast in is the fundamental thing that defines you. It gives away your true loyalties. Where you draw your identity and self-worth from. It could be your job, it could be your family, it could be your talents, or Jesus. In Philippians 3, Paul says that before he was a Christian, he had a really good resume. He was confident in that. He boasted in who and what he was. But in Christ, he considers them garbage, literally trash to be taken out, to be be thrown away and to be burned. 
He's saying, I don't put any confidence in that anymore. I'm not going to boast about that. Literally the exact opposite. He would recoil in horror if he thought that he was boasting in what he was before. And he had a good resume, but he just ripped it up in Christ. Think about this. Boasting and believing are actually opposites. You can't be doing both at the same time. A Christian is to boast in the Lord. And the result of God's plan of salvation is to take away every shred of self-credit, every ounce of self-congratulation, every bit of self-exaltation on our part. Just take it away. We have no merit. We deserve God's wrath. We can give no credit for our deliverance from God's wrath to ourselves. We cannot exalt ourselves in the presence of God or in comparison to fellow sinners. But we do. Sin is heinous in the sight of God. It's putrid to God. And so it's absolutely necessary that we understand something. We understand that nothing done by us will in any way lessen our personal guilt on account of our sin. You go on in verse 27, it says, by what kind of law? By a law of works? The answer, no, actually a law of faith. The law of faith. What's required? Not works. Faith? Yes, the gospel. The gospel is the law of faith. Romans 9 alludes to that. God's plan of justification never put the basis of our acceptance with God on us. Never. No advantage, not family, not church connections can help you. R.C. Sproul put it this way, no one's born a Christian. I've had, I've had people give a testimony and say, I was born a Christian. No, you weren't. You were born a, a little ball of sinful joy. You're ready to break out on anyone in your path. The flesh does not produce redemption. It can't. The basis for your acceptance with God is completely outside of you. It calls for your humble, repentant confession and acknowledgement of your sin and exclusive trust in the merits of Christ alone. Now, plenty of people will say, yeah, I did that in 1987 at the Billy Graham crusade. I don't need to keep doing that. I did it once. It's like the guy who says to his wife, I told you I loved you on our wedding day. I'll let you know if anything changes. Actually, the Christian life calls for your humble, repentant confession and acknowledgement of your sin and exclusive trust in the merit of Christ alone all the time. All the time. This section that we're going through in Romans, starting right here, chapter 3, verse 27, go all the way to the end of chapter 4, Paul is basically exploring the theological basis of Romans 3, 21 to 26 that we looked at last week. And he's explaining one key part of it, faith. Some Christians will say, wait a minute, so we're going to be talking about faith a lot? 
Well, you think it's bad? You are saved by grace through faith. You should want to grasp what this means. And so Paul is going to focus on faith, and it's the theme that he started in chapter 3, verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. You go through chapter 4, and every paragraph, the topic is faith. It's contrasted with works of the law right here. It's contrasted with works and with circumcision and the law. Think about the foundation of the Reformation. I'll take you back to the sermon series on the five solas. And, and the foundation of the Reformation, sola fide, faith alone, that's how you're brought into a right relationship with God through Christ. It's necessary for sola gratia, grace alone. So in verse 28 he says, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Concludes the previous argument, confirms what was said before. He is, he is saying boasting is excluded. I am convinced of it. We are justified by faith, not works. So there is no room for boasting. No insistent on our merit. Justification is by faith. Must be by faith alone. We are fully justified in Christ. What's interesting is Martin Luther, in his translation of this passage, put in the word alone. He said, we're justified by faith alone. He actually added a word in there. And a lot of people got upset about that. But interestingly, while that word isn't in there, his translation is spot on in context. It's talking about how we are justified by faith alone and no works. The Westminster Confession Speaking of justification in chapter 11, says this. Those whom God effectually calls, he also freely justifies, not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous, not for anything in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone nor by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but by imputing the obedience and satisfaction of Christ to them, they receive and rest on him and his righteousness by faith. The faith they have not of themselves, it is the gift of God. Without works of the law, to be made right with God without works is to be made right without anything in you to deserve it. And don't we all feel a bit deserving? No work can help you. The essence of the moral law taught by Jesus was what? That you need to love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength and your neighbor as yourself. You can't do that apart from re regeneration. You can't do that apart from the new birth. It might look like you're doing it, but you're not. Justification is apart from you. We are not justified by works performed by us or, get this, by the fruit of the Spirit in us as believers. Like, hey, I've been, I've been, I've been working on it and I see a lot of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control in me. 
wow, God needs to justify me more. It's not going to happen. You're trusting in the wrong thing. The cross eliminates boasting. No room or reason to boast. What do people do, though? They glorify themselves under the wrath of God. Good news, God paid the bill for your sin. Satisfaction in his death. That's the meaning of Christ's death. Satisfaction. You receive the grace and mercy of God. Makes you right with God. That's how you can be right with God. It's revealed by God. It's acquired by faith. It's provided for to all who believe. And it's given freely. And it's paid by Christ's sacrifice. Justification by faith. That is not an accomplishment on your part. That is a statement on God's part. That is a pronouncement. That is a declaration where God says, based on Christ's death and righteousness, you are right with me. It is an imputed righteousness. It is given by God because we are unrighteous and we can't make ourselves righteous. We are justified by faith. We are made right by faith. A, a great Savior has given us a great salvation. Think with me about boasting for a moment. It's just an interesting thing. If you go around bragging all the time, people are going to correct you socially. Like if it's an outward bragging, people are going to be like, I don't want to be around you. You're obnoxious. You're always telling everyone how great you are. It's like you're wearing a billboard, you know, on your, your, your back and you're telling everyone that they should like, you know, bow down to you because you're so good. So here's the thing about external boasting. It gets handled socially. You get corrected by your friends and family and people you don't like. I don't know. But our problem is our internal self-congratulation. That's the big hidden problem in the church of Jesus Christ that leads to real relational issues between people. Here's how it goes. You're able to do something. People notice. You somehow get popular for it, and then uh, you, there's some power along with it, and, and, and some pride comes in, and you fall. Proverbs tells us pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. But God is so good. And what he keeps doing in the life of a believer, and what he keeps doing in your heart and your life, if you are yielded to him, some people resist. God is so good as to make us humble on an ongoing basis, to make us aware of our sin on an ongoing basis and our need for mercy on an ongoing basis, which enables us to continue to praise God and tell him how great he is and how wonderful his works are. And when you're constantly telling God how great he is and how wonderful and amazing his works are, there's, there's no boasting that comes out of you. And, and, and you're not talking to yourself in a boasting way internally. You go with the psalmist and you say, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. But I know that you might feel like a yo-yo sometimes or a push-me-pull-you uh, it goes like this. You're on one end of the spectrum or the other. You're either pummeling yourself in, in guilt and blame for your sin or you're congratulating yourself for your good behavior. And both are wrong. 
God sending Jesus Christ as the atoning sacrifice for our sin in our place as our substitute ought to lead us to see that God is the one who is perfectly just and perfectly righteous and infinitely gracious and that we have no reason to to boast or blame. That salvation is open only to those who come to God with the empty hand of faith. You don't boast in your Bible knowledge or your outward moral success or your friendships with Christian people or your church membership. You must understand imputed righteousness or you will trust in those things. Imputed righteousness is an absolute, instantaneous, undeserved, permanent, forever gift from God to you. And you think about the church of Jesus Christ. The church of Jesus Christ should be united, often it is fractured. The church of Jesus Christ ought to be outward looking with the gospel, is often inward looking. How can a church at the very same time become more united and more outward looking? It's by grasping this truth that all boasting is excluded because all Christians are justified by grace through faith. That is vital to harmony in the church and our mission outside the church, outside these walls. The cross humbles us. Humbles us in our hearts and it humbles us together. Boasting's excluded. Let's move on to the next point. The, The boasting is excluded and also, number two, the cross eliminates distinctions. Distinctions, verses 29 and 30. Verse 29, question, is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Answer, yes, of Gentiles too. Verse 30, God is one. He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. God is equally the God of all who believe. So as the plan of salvation is stripping us of all merit, It also places us on the same level before God. It cuts off all assumptions of superiority of one class over another. Just like he did in verse 20, Paul says God is going to justify. What that means, he's not going to do it just for now or just at the final judgment, but he's going to do it permanently, permanently, because that's his purpose. In the gospel, John Murray said there is no discrimination arising from race or culture and there is no obstacle arising from the degradation of sin. The cross eliminates distinctions. We have just seen the cross exalt God's grace. Now we're seeing it reveal God's impartiality. And guess what kind of impartiality he has? Guess what kind of impartiality he has? He has an exclusive one. Might sound like An oxymoron there. He has an exclusive impartiality? Absolutely. He is impartial and he is fair and he only saves the one who has faith in Christ. He has an impartial exclusivity. It says here that the Lord is one. It harkens us back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. The Lord our God is 
one God. If you're a Jew, that's your first truth you've got to grasp. God says that you shall have no other gods before me. Isaiah 40, verse 5, God says, there is none beside me. He's everybody's God who believes in him. 1 Corinthians 8, 5 talks about so-called gods. There are so-called gods in the world, but Ephesians 4 tells us there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all. Think about Jonah, the Jonah from the Old Testament. Think about Jonah for a minute. Who did Jonah hate? Who did Jonah hate? Ninevites, yes, he, he hated Ninevites. You know your Bible, good. Why did he hate them? Because he didn't want them to get saved. He didn't want them to repent because he knew God is gracious. And he's like, well, God is gracious. They're going to repent, which means they're going to get forgiven. I'm going to run the other way from that call. I'm not going to do it. He hated them because he didn't want them to receive God's mercy. Ruth, Old Testament Ruth, a Gentile, makes the statement, your God shall be my God. I'm going to worship the one true God. Naaman, the Syrian, the Hitler of his generation, gets leprosy. What does he do? He comes to worship the one true God. God has the same way, by the way, of saving all people. Everyone who's ever been saved has been saved by grace through faith. In the Old Testament, if you were in the Old Testament economy, you would be saved by your faith in the future work of the Messiah. Now, today, you're saved by the finished work of Christ when you put your faith in Christ. Acts 4.12 tells us there is no other way, there is no other name by which we must be saved. One way, one name, one God, only one way of salvation. Genesis 6 tells us that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Romans 4.3 tells us that Abraham and David were saved by faith. Habakkuk 2.4 says the just shall live by faith. Hebrews 11, the whole list, which by the way, included some pretty shady characters. All by faith. There's some pretty shady characters here. You're saved by faith. I'm, I'm here. You're saved by faith. God justifies the circumcised by faith, the uncircumcised through faith. He deals with both the same, same plan of salvation. This is why we can preach the gospel to everyone. You don't preach one gospel to Jews and another to Gentiles. You don't say, well, you know, I got one gospel for my friends and one for my enemies. This fits the character of God in his relation to all humans on earth. God is a universal God and not a national God. His method of salvation is universally accepted and applicable to any who believe. So as a Gentile, and you become a believer, you can pray and confidently say, God, you are my father. But we make distinctions and we make judgments. And as, as in professing believers, it's very easy for us to think that God is happier with us than, than other people. That God likes certain people. It's easy to look at the outward appearance, isn't it? 
You're kind of doing that all the time, aren't you? We can't see the heart, but we still judge by outward appearance. Or we assume someone's heart. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. He's told, don't look at the outward appearance. But he's also told, you can't see the heart. And isn't it easy to make these internal distinctions that, that we make that, to put us higher than other people? The cross eliminates distinctions. God is not giving out gold, silver, and bronze in terms of justification. He's not giving out brownie points, this hypothetical social currency that is out there, brownie points. He's not giving out bitcoins out for your good behavior. Now, in the term of sanctification, uh, there will be some people who, whose works are burned and they will be saved yet so as through fire. You know, when you start your uh, gas fireplace and so many times I've, you know, it goes woof and, and it gets your, the, the hair on the back of your hand, if you have hair on the back of your hand. Uh, and my hair on the back of this hand has been singed many times. So there will be some people whose works are burned up and they will be saved yet so as through fire. But I don't think we want to go there. I think we want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Just remember, this passage is talking about justification. And there is no distinction at all in that realm. God is the same God of all who are saved. God saves them all in the same way. God doesn't like some people more than others when it comes to who he has chosen to be saved. But we make distinctions. We give out blue ribbons to some and red ribbons to others, I guess, right? I remember when I was a kid, I, we had an um, art class, uh, second grade probably, and I, I drew a picture of a horse, just a horse's head actually, and I did it out of blue chalk, and you know, I didn't think it was the best picture in the world. In fact, when you look at it now, you're like, something's missing in this picture. You know, the bridle is like floating in air, and maybe it was the 60s, so maybe they thought this was a cool thing, you know, kind of avant-garde art, I don't know. All I know is that we went in the evening to the art show, like, you know, parent open house, whatever you want to call it, and lo and behold, we get in there to the uh, cafeteria that smells like weird milk, right? And there, it, there's my picture of my horse with a blue first place ribbon on it. It's, it's at my parents' house in the hallway in Fallbrook if you want to see it. It, it meant a lot to them, uh, and it meant a lot to me, you know. Um, but when it comes to making someone right with him, God doesn't give out awards for good behavior or your talents. We all deserve hell. That's it. So is God the God of any particular group within humanity? You know, maybe just his chosen people, the Jews? Well, of course not. We all know God is one. The one and only God of all the world. And not just that he is the only one but he possesses absolute consistency and holiness. He, right this moment, is holding the universe together by the word of his power. And so when he justifies you, he does so in a consistent way, with no favorites, 100% by grace. Do not think that there was something hyper-special about you that made God like you more and want to choose you. And I think that it's very easy for us to not grasp, not really grasp, that we have 
been put right with God 100% by grace. We start doing that internal self-congratulation. We start making distinctions between us and other people. When we think that way, when we start thinking that way because, because somehow we have some religious privileges or, hey, you know, I go way back with God or I came from a Christian family or I've been going to church for years and I have a special place in the church and I know my Bible and I've been baptized and I take the Lord's Supper and that, hey, my life is pretty together and morally upright and I'm a pillar of the church When you do that, you are acting like a practical pluralist. A practical pluralist. Where you replace the one true God with some little tribal God who has special rules for you and anyone like you. It's unbiblical. And then what does the church become? A a, a place of first, second, and third class Christians. No. God says no, Paul says no, I'm saying no. The one God of all unites a church under his one means of justification and then sends us out into the world to preach the gospel to all. This is why boasting is excluded. This is why distinctions are eliminated by the cross of Christ. What does a united church do? The United Church deepens in faith, do what they're called to do by God, and willingly and sacrificially deploys as many resources as they can for the gospel. Because the cross humbles us and it unites us. Let's look at the last point in verse 31. The cross excludes boasting and it eliminates distinctions, but what else does it do? It, and this might be the most startling for you, It establishes the law. The cross establishes the law. Verse 31, do we overthrow the law by this faith? No way. On the contrary, we uphold it. We establish it. Instead of doing away with it and saying it's no longer valid, the gospel establishes the law. Let's the gospel do its work. Let's the the law do its work, pointing you to the gospel. The law cannot save you, but it points you to the one who can. The law leads you to the gospel. It tells you that you need Jesus. It tells you that you're a sinner. It reminds you clearly that you can't save yourself. As Galatians put it, it is a tutor to lead you to Christ. The law is from God. The gospel is from God, both from God and designed for different purposes. They are not in conflict. The doctrine of justification by faith is the doctrine of the Old and New Testament. When when God declares you right with him by faith, he is treating you according to the righteousness of Christ as if the the demands of the law have been satisfied concerning you because Christ satisfied them. Justification is granted to those who have no personal reason to receive it except the grace of God. The law of God is unchangeable, is always binding. Its penalty will either be given to you or your substitute. And there's only one substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ was made a curse for us as our substitute. Christ bore the penalty of the law. 
Christ suffered to satisfy the law. Christ suffered to declare the righteousness of God. To be just in justifying the one who has faith in him. You've got to guard against a common misunderstanding that some say that, well, if righteousness is not through the law, then the law is abolished. Paul is showing how the, the gospel breaks old covenant boundaries while being in complete continuity and agreement with it. Faith does not nullify the law. It establishes the law. Faith enables the law to be truly fulfilled. The law is established in in convicting and condemning sinners, prepares the way for Christ. Even more, it is upheld as it testifies to your faith. It's referring to the commands of God, the, the moral norms of God that still function as the authoritative will of God for the believer. You can't say, well, I don't need to keep the Ten Commandments. You don't need to keep the Ten Commandments to be saved, but once you're saved, oh, yes, you do. Yes, you need to do what God wants you to do. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll do what I say. The idea is not that the law is fulfilled by faith in Christ, but that those who have faith in Christ are enabled to obey God's commands. The turning point for your soul is the saving act of God on your behalf, which results in you turning to Christ as the propitiation for your sins. The most important the, most, the first and foremost thing is to receive the Lord Jesus Christ and turn to God through him. It's the only way to God. I want you to listen really closely. The law was never given to save you, but to show you that you need to be saved and to, draw, and to drive you to God. If you are broken over your sin, God offers grace and healing in Christ. His justice and his mercy are harmonized in the gospel. He has established the possibility of obeying him because Christ is sufficient. You have a new ability to obey God. Walk after the spirit, not the flesh. Because God purposes all of this for his own glory as the goal of all he does. So we must have his glory as our constant goal. Think about this for a moment, the law being established. Just think about it as God putting his stamp of approval on everything he does. And he gave the law, and it's good because it shows us our need for Christ. And he gave the gospel, and it's awesome because it saves us. And just remember that God saving you enables you to actually keep his commands. You do so in the power of the Holy Spirit for his glory alone. And just remember, there's no room for boasting in yourself. There's no room for self-congratulation. These are the dynamic effects of the cross. We must accept them. The cross humbles you, it unites you with other believers, and it frees you to serve Jesus. Without the cross, we're hopeless. Mercy, shielding us from the wrath of God to come. If you remember the space shuttle, on the nose cone of the space shuttle, there was what was known as the propitiation shield. Uh, when the shuttle would re-enter Earth's atmosphere, it was hitting temperatures of 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And how could it withstand the heat? Because the propitiatory shields absorbed the heat upon re-entry and kept the astronauts safe. In the gospel, Jesus became your propitiation shield on the cross. 
Because Jesus on the cross was like the nose cone of the shuttle as he encountered the anger of God at sin. Jesus was exposed to the full force of God's wrath in order to save everyone who puts their faith in him. Mercy shields you from wrath. Fire destroys. The present heaven and earth are being reserved for fire. God's judgment will come upon the earth. Just like we're praying for protection from those who are experiencing the SoCal fires right now. We need to pray fervently that those in danger of eternal fire will turn to Christ. A remnant will be saved. All those he chose before the foundation of the world will come to him. By grace, through faith in Christ. All God's doing, as Paul put it, it is by his doing that you are in Christ. God will shield you from the fire. This is what the cross does. It excludes boasting. It eliminates distinction. It establishes the law, which gives us all the more reason to love the Lord with all our hearts and trust him and worship him and want to serve him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that the cross humbles us and unites us and frees us to serve you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you, Lord, that one day you will return, and until then, we want to proclaim your death until you come again. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.